Let's Talk Outdoors is recorded on the homelands of many nations, including the Cree, Soto, Assiniboine, Dene, Dakota, Lakota, Nakota, and Métis nations on the Treaty 6 and Treaty 4 territories. We encourage you to always learn more about the stories of the land on which you live, work, and play. Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Leah, and this is Let's Talk Outdoors. Today, our guest is Megan Gursky. Megan is the outdoor play coordinator with Sask Outdoors, and she has experience as an outdoor teacher. Megan is also the owner of the Northwest 25, an outdoor education business around the Yorkton area. She took time out of her busy day to talk with us about removing barriers to outdoor education, risk, and assessment in the field. Welcome to our podcast, Megan. Can you tell us a bit about your background and what got you interested in outdoor education? For sure. So I am a teacher who stepped away from teaching um, and has decided to take their own outdoor learning opportunities and offer them to youth and the surrounding communities of uh, Yorkton and area. That's where I'm from. It's where I grew up. And uh, I also work with Sask Outdoors doing the Sask Outdoor Play Coordinator which is really fun. It's getting people outside and showcasing um, what you can do outside and all the benefits to it, even though some may be risky. Why do you think it's important to take students outside or, or anywhere outdoors? So I think it's important to take anything, any kind of groups, whether it's family, uh, friends, even school groups, student groups, um, outside, because when you're outside, learning naturally occurs. And you can see this through wonder, creativity, um, problem solving. And when you're in a structured type of setting where everything is checking a box, you don't have that opportunity to wonder or think outside the box. It's always you're trying to make that check mark happen. So it's really nice when you get outside because uh, new things will come up and teachable moments come a lot more naturally when there's a lot of things to look at and do. Absolutely. Do you have an example of a time that you've experienced that with your with a group of students or adults or people? <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Um, so I have lots, but one that always sticks out to me is just the before and after that you see of the effects of the groups of kids. So the first time you'll take them outside and you get that stubbornness. I don't want to do this. And, you know, and it's, well, this is dumb. And, you know, why are we doing this? Right. And then the best part that I could say about it is that by the end of it, once you've turned this into a norm, it's why aren't we going out more and what can we do outside? And, well, we want to try this. And so it turns into more of student-led or youth-led or even participant-led um, activities. So, but one that really sticks out is that I have taken students rabbit hunting and it was really nice to see the full circle effect. And so the students uh, caught some rabbits, they did all their cleaning and everything. And one of the students came up and said, hey, can I, can I cook with that? And I'm like, well, yeah, like, of course. Like, and so this kid really loves culinary. He actually ended up going to culinary arts school, but he grabbed this rabbit, made this huge stew, 
And then we went ice fishing the next week and the kids are like, well, aren't we eating our stew? And then so it just turned into this big cycle of using what we have and and utilizing what we're doing and making it purposeful. But that was the kids' decision, not mine, which was really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just taught short stories and we've been doing we've been outside for during the winter months here and we were talking about antagonists and protagonists and the kids were like, well, I was like, what's, what would be a good antagonist? And they're like, well, can weather be an antagonist? Like can, can Nate, cause this is brutal out here. I'm like, yeah, they absolutely can. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Yeah. Ki- kids will come up with everything, right? Like when you give them the opportunity and, and like I said, that's why I really love the outdoors because it, it gives them that opportunity to think for themselves because as a teacher, as a parent, as a guardian, you can't watch everything when you're outside. You have to let some natural things happen. And those are when those teachable and learning moments happen, I think. You used the word risk earlier, and risk is a pretty big word in this sphere. Can you tell us more about how you address risk when you take students outdoors and how you address it with other people that are also validly concerned about risk? I always think that risk is important because risk means that you know what's out there and risk means that you're aware of what can happen. But knowing that there is bad risk, right? There's things that could go bad, but having that awareness prepares you for that so that you can be uh, knowledgeable in whatever you're doing. But what I think is really important to know is when you think about the learning process and when how you learn. You learn through mistakes. You learn through failure. That's that's how we learn to do things differently or do things new. So I always say that when, you know, if you take a kid outside and they climb a tree, right, and they fall out and they break their arm, did they learn something? Well, yeah, either they can't climb that high or they need to learn how to climb down Or maybe that was a really rotten tree and you shouldn't have climbed it. So there was three learning opportunities right there. Whereas if you walk by that tree, you never take the risk and you never try. What did you learn? You didn't learn anything. So I think that that's a really big piece in the learning journey is that if you want to learn more and you want to become more knowledgeable in an area, you have to be aware of the risks and you have to be able to take some risks in order to get the reward of learning whatever task you're doing. I think when you're going out in a structured environment or a scaffolded environment with a knowledgeable educator, you can mitigate a lot of those risks too. There's opportunities to talk through, are you comfortable? Do you think this is a good tree to climb? Um, there's a lot of learning opportunities that then extend into other areas of life when the said person might not be in with a trusted adult or having to make decisions on their own and they have had this experience that they can reflect back on. Right, exactly. And and having that be a positive experience, you know, rather than a negative. So it's like you said, Leah, right? Like if you climb this tree, what would happen, right? Turning that positive instead of saying, don't climb that tree, that's dangerous. Well, then what's not dangerous, right? And what, so it, it's understanding that risk can be dangerous, but if you understand that there's danger, then you can, yeah, mitigate it or, you know, alleviate. But preparation, I think, is really key. Um, so whether you're an educator, whether you're a parent, caregiver, anything like that, when you're planning to go outside, you have to be aware. 
you don't go outside when it's minus 40 with, you know, no toucan or no mitts, right? That's that's a risk. So we know that, oh, hey, we should probably dress warm. So understanding that and teaching that to new people who are going, doing new outdoor, outdoor activities. Yeah, that's what I would say kind of about risk. You and Leah kind of touched on some of this sort of stuff. I know you guys just finished doing a workshop too with some teachers, but what would be some barriers that teachers face in getting kids outdoors? I mean, you just mentioned, you know, weather can be something, but yeah, I can imagine there's a long list of what you kind of think, what might stop teachers from getting outdoors with their kids. Uh, So we're not taught to teach outside. Every teacher has went through their training and every time, and unless you do like specialized training, right? Even then I did an outdoor program through the U of R and it was still taught based in classroom setting, right? And then we're talking about taking the kids outside and doing so with that, there's always barriers. The biggest one that I find is that there's no time to create something to mitigate that through the eyes of the administration or the division, right? So they need paper copies of everything. They need documentation. And it's not provided a lot of the time for teachers or educators. And so they have to go through and find out and see what it is and get the parent feedback forms and get, you know, all these things signed, which sometimes can push teachers away because that's a lot of work for one. Um, And for the teachers who are like, sweet, I did all that. And I want to go out there. Sometimes kids get really stressed when you take them outside or you take them somewhere new as well. Some kids might love it, but then you have that, you know, there's the norm and then there's the not norm, but then you get into the risks of the liabilities. Right. And, and that's usually the scary part is what if this happens? Um, I hear that a lot from teachers is, well, what if a kid breaks their arm? And I said, okay, well, what, what happens? You tell me what happens if a kid breaks their arm in the gym? I've had a, I've had a broken nose in the gym. Where, where's the risk in that? Right. And so I think that it's again, understanding what risk is and understanding how to be prepared and how to prepare others to go out on it. So one of the biggest barriers, like I said, for teachers would be that there's a lot of behind the scenes work that has to be done in order to mitigate that risk to go out. Something I think you didn't touch on was the risks of not going outside. Like they're less in your face. I think you think about going outside, maybe if you slip on the ice, that's like an immediate consequence, but there are long-term risks of a more sedentary lifestyle or too much screen time. And the, but we just can put those off because they're not necessarily imminent and in our face. Right now I sub as a teacher and it blows my mind the amount of students that have their own Chromebook in every school I've been to. It it used to be, you know, you'd go to the computer lab, right? And then it used to be, you know, there's a Chromebook cart and everybody. But nowadays I've, I've never seen so many kids so attached to technology in the sense of, and it's not necessarily their fault. They're, their classes are online. Everything is on Google Classroom. Anything that they watch, if they have to watch a video, it's on there. The questions for the book they're reading, they have to answer them on the computer. And so I think there's a huge risk with the generation of kids that we have now and their idea of what risk is and and getting them to get outside because that's what worries me in, in the bigger picture is that what is our society going to look like in 20 years? 
what kind of outdoor activities, what kind of teachers are going to still be doing this, right? And that's why I think it's so important to try really hard, even though we do get a lot of pushback when we do these things because they're risky. But I that is one thing that I, I will say is like, well, there, there's bigger risks in the long term if we don't do this. How do you make outdoor education or place-based education also acceptable, accessible for kids of different socioeconomic backgrounds? So regardless of their class or affordability and, and the racial background, you know, indigenous and newcomers and everybody else for, for outside of the white community as well. Not that we exclude kids who are white, but, you know, to make it a more inclusive environment. When I taught my program, we accepted whatever background you came from. And we did a lot. So if you can visualize my classroom, all the desks were in a U shape. And then the teacher or instructor, as I would just say, whoever was educating us was in the middle in the front. So at the top of the U. And so we did a lot because a lot of my class was coming from different backgrounds. So different um, backgrounds of First Nations cultures, uh, which sometimes would cause rifts. We had Métis culture. We also had some uh, Filipino and what else? There is an array of backgrounds. And so the best thing and the best advice I could give to create that inclusiveness within the classroom is building those relationships and creating leaders within your classroom and understanding. So when we had any kind of discussion in our class, whether it was outside or inside, but with the U shape, the kids would be around and I would be starting a lesson. Say we were talking about something from the past or historical backgrounds. If the student ever felt that they had something to say, instead of like throwing their hand up or interrupting, right? We had like, it wasn't, it was like a marker actually, we just threw it. And so the kid would be like, pass me the marker. And so they would throw it and then that kid would jump the desk, we'd switch spots and they would teach for a little bit. And so that's just one little thing that I would do in the classroom to just create that inclusivity and to create that, that you can learn from each other and that I'm not the end all be all. And I think that that's important because a lot of people come in with a lot of different stories and a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different knowledge that they learn from many different ways, which I think is important. And so when you're able to share that openly in a classroom, whether you're outside, inside, I think that's the start of it. And that is how you can create that inclusive setting and welcoming setting. Um, And so the coolest part about that, so I have all these backgrounds, and we've done lots of outdoor things. This is the group that, you know, went from rabbits to stew to fishing, like it was really great. And but one thing that they did was you really felt a sense of community and belonging. Um, I started, a lot of these kids would come in and they're hungry in the morning. And so in my classroom, I just put a microwave and a coffee maker and a toaster and I brought to- uh, bread. And so a couple weeks later, I noticed that there was no bread. So I was going to go grab some. Over lunch, the kids actually brought bread themselves. And they on their own created this like setting where they would go and get and oh hey you want that jam today oh I'm gonna get the grape one and and like I had nothing to do with it other than I just put a toaster there and I put a microwave and a and they created that community and so once you have that environment where they can feel safe wherever they come from they can feel welcomed wherever they come from then it makes going outside really easy because they want to do things together and they want to help benefit each other. And so there's always going to be one kid that's going to be excited about something you're doing. 
So if one person is excited, it really radiates to the whole group when you have that safe environment. Something I've heard you talk about uh, is pre-trip, pre-outing, not lessons, but like preparations, I guess. And so I think sometimes in this sphere, we go out and do this cool thing and then we come back and it's done and we move on to the next thing. Can you talk a bit about how you can make that learning opportunity more well-rounded and lasting? So yeah, I'm a firm believer in the pre-impact, impact impact, and post-impact type of uh, learning. And so what that is, is if you have an activity, say we say we say ice fishing, right? So what we would do is pre-impact, you could look at the local fish in the area, you can look at the rivers, you can look at the lakes, you can see how things connect, you can make that connection to what those fish are, or what the surroundings are, what the weather's going to be like, what about safety, what about ice safety. So there's so many things and topics you can cover leading up to your experience, which makes the students or, or groups really excited about it you want to try and hook them in so that it's something that they want to do and then once they do it they're really engaged into it because they feel like they know a little bit more and anybody does better at things when you're more knowledgeable about it and so if you really understand what you're doing it mitigates that um, factor of questions and 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 stubbornness when you're in the activity because they're aware of what they're getting into And then once you do the activity, the impact is easy. You do whatever the experience is, and then you leave any of the assessment or evidence of learning and things till later because you want them to fully immerse into that activity. And so once they're in the activity, you just let them learn inquiry-based. They think on their own, they problem solve on their own because they did the pre-impact learning. And then after, so after you've done that experience, you reflect on it. Well, what learning happened? Well, what was really cool? Like what, and and it can go personal or you can go more educational if there were certain things that you had to focus on. And, and it just keeps that learning happening so that it becomes a purposeful experience rather than a experience, if that makes sense. Yeah, I've had a lot of experiences where we just go. And then at the end, it's kind of like, oh, that was a cool experience. But then now we're, we're done with that. Or I have the people running that event being like, so what do you guys know about this going into the event? It's like nothing. Mr. Preble hasn't done his job. It's like, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> it's a good note for next time. Well, I think that a lot of people do that though. And it's, it's not to anyone's fault of their own. It's still a great thing to do an experience, but it just makes that experience a little bit more impactful and memorable, whether it's a learning memorable or personal memorable. Um, But it just makes that experience a little bit more better for the learning piece, right? And it just makes it so that you feel when you come back, you're not rushing to go back into a structured classroom. You're like, cool, like, let's continue this. Like, what did you learn? Like, what was really cool about it? Maybe it was a game. Let's play it again, right? And, And so that's one thing that I would just suggest is just try and drag it out, even if it is an experience that was dropped on your doorstep on the morning of. I know that rarely happens in teaching, but sometimes it does. <laughs> you used the word assessment in one of your recent answers. And I think uh, that's top of mind for teachers is r- making these experiences relate to curriculum and then how are they assessed Uh, And I know you have some experience in that. Can you share some broad stories about how you have done that? Sure. So 
I am a very organized person. I, I love to organize. I love to connect. And so honestly, when you look at curriculum, just look at it as, as like a puzzle. You can pick and choose. Like the curriculum is, yes, it is set out to say, you know, here's the outcome, here's all the indicators, but there's no one telling, like there's there's guidelines, but there's no one saying what specifically needs to happen. Yes, you have requirements that you need to meet, but it doesn't say you can't read a poem around a campfire and talk about the stories. It doesn't say that you can't write an essay based on the land versus a book. So there's a lot of things that I think we take it so critically when we look at the curriculum and we think, well, we have to do it this way. No, it's we have our own professional judgment. And that is why we are teachers. We are able to adapt. We are we have to differentiate most of the things we do anyways. So why not differentiate to go outside? Um, and that's one way that you can differentiate your lessons. So when you look at your assessment, a key thing when you're going outside, it's an easy way is checklists, or you can do um, rubrics. And those are just easy ways to keep everything that you're doing in mind. So the pre-impact, impact, and post-impact can all have rubrics attached with a certain outcome that you're working on. And again, you will probably not hit every single indicator or every single outcome like piece, but you can start piecing it together. So it's a backwards by design, but particles, I guess you can say, because you're not taking one whole unit you're you're breaking those things down and trying to connect it in a more purposeful way to, for the outdoors. And so is it hard? Yes. Is it a new way of thinking? Kind of. Um, it's more of reading between the lines and seeing, well, how can this work? So for an example, like if you look at the wildlife management curriculum, this is an elective piece of PAA course that's module based, but you don't have to do each module as a module. You can take a piece from module one and a piece from module three and put them together to create an experience, right? And then you just, again, you have to make sure that all of your pieces are covered in the end, which is the difficult part because it takes a lot of pre-planning as a teacher, which we like to say that we do because we make our year plans, but I don't know a single teacher that actually follows their year plans to a T their entire year. So we adapt anyways. So why not adapt for outdoors? That's great. I don't have kids. And so I'm not a parent. So I often pass the buck on to parents supporting their kids quite a bit, which is great. I have fantastic parents with my program, but, uh, but how can parents support outdoor learning more? Oh, and see, I'm on the opposite spectrum. A lot of the students that I work with, there's not much parent support. Um, sometimes there is and sometimes there's not. But one of the biggest things is encouraging outdoor time beyond the school. So like knowing that, you know, that's a regular part of life. And so if it's not a regular part of their life, it's kind of hard. I'm not a parent either. So it's hard for me to say, you know, hey, parents, you have to take your kids outside, right? Because it's easy for me to say, I understand how the world works. Um, but also, I think just being supportive in uh, the expectations and the things that go on with outdoors uh, or outdoor classes or outdoor settings, right? But being honest with it, if they're not comfortable, they're not comfortable, right? But I think that that's really important to have that communication because going outdoors can be a risk. 
you can have flight risk, right? So having communication with parents to make them feel safe, right? That their kid is safe, right? I think is super important because then parents are more inclined to do more things with their kids or let their kids do more. Yeah, I was doing this project where I had to interview some of my, like some students who I know they'd been doing big things around the city. And so we were interviewing them about what got them started in all their climate activism or their whatever. And every single one of them said it was from outdoor experiences when they were younger with their family. And, you know, I, I taught some, so like, like quietly, I was like, hmm, I wonder if they're going to mention that. No, it was all about these wonderful things that times that they did with their family and whether that was fishing or just going outside for walks with them, like being forced to go outside and eventually picking on all the nuances of their neighborhood or tobogganing or going to the mountains or whatever. So yeah, I think that is a pretty powerful impact on, on students. Yeah. And I'm like, I am one of the people who I did not get into the outdoors until I was in university. I never went on a family camping trip. I never, like we never, I never did this stuff growing up. And so that's why I have such a passion for it now and a passion to give those opportunities to the kids that are like me when they were younger and they didn't have that opportunity. And so if all schools were able to do it, that's that's that one kid that didn't get that opportunity to go with their parents, right? Or they're just not outdoorsy people, but they had the chance to remember because every single student that I've taught that has graduated so far has talked about the program that I taught with the outdoor experiences, the camping trips they went on, the memories they made, the friendships they still had. And like, it, it it's an amazing thing to watch, to see those relationships flourish throughout life. And to know, like, not that that I started it, but the class and that outdoor setting really got them to that budding relationship. I think when you talk about relationships, there's so many relationships at play too. There's a relationship between classmates and with the teacher and with the places and the land that you're on. And so it's, uh, constantly changing and different for everyone. And I think that's where it's extra nuanced and neat to watch. Do you have any resources or professional development that you would recommend to teachers or people want, who want to get outside? For sure. There's the two books uh, that instantly always come to my mind. Uh, it's Land-Based Education. So what it does is it goes through the seasons and the curricular learning that you connect to land-based. And so, and the First Nations culture, it helps to guide you on when you might need a knowledge keeper, when you might want to contact for an elder or gathering information. So it, it tells you all about the ceremonies, the practices, and understanding um, the First Nations culture from a land-based perspective. And then there's the uh, Wonders of Wildlife or Wilderness by Lori Milligan, um, which is available through the Sask Wildlife Federation. And that's another one that it just has a, a such a great amount of activities from lower level learning to senior level learning and adapting to the weather and the changes and things like that. Um, and then obviously, I love going to the Sask Outdoors like Project Wet, Project Wild, those, those give you so many opportunities to have a lesson plan ready to go that you don't have to prepare when you're ready to go outside. There's obviously things you have to prepare within it, but as a teacher, it's so nice to get a lesson plan 
but just have to adapt a few little things versus have to create an entire lesson. It makes a world of a difference to at least have a starting point. And so all of those resources that you would get from Sask, uh, sorry, from Project Wet, Project Wild, and then with the two other ones, you would be set 100% to get rolling to outside. I'm a member, obviously, with Sask Outdoors. I have not checked out Project Wet. <laughs> I need to do that. I know. Leah's doing a what in the world? Yeah. I took it through Leah and it was really, it was really cool. Like it's just, and it's, it's nice to take the course for when you have to, to get the book. But I had a lot of the books just handed down for me when I first started teaching before I even knew they were a course and I used them so much. And then, but then I took the courses and I'm like, holy crap, this is so much nicer. I actually know, like, it's just a better explanation of things, which is super helpful, um, especially when you're looking at it. And it is a lot. Um, Any resource teachers get, we usually get like a huge amount that we have to siphon through because it's somebody else's material. Um, So, so yeah, so no matter what you do, it's still going to be time consuming. (laughs) But those would definitely be my top resources for that. Yeah, I quickly, well, we, I think we've talked about it on a previous episode too, but quickly learned that reaching out to other educators and those, especially those that have been around a little longer too, for in like these fields of, is such a benefit for, for your own practice and saves you all those stupid mistakes that you might make along the way too. Yeah. I, I've learned a lot from canoe trips because like I've went with seasoned veteran teachers, right. And And you learn all these well, first, they they tell you all the horror stories that have happened to them over the years. And you're going into this as like a newer, you know, fresh lead to this canoe trip. And I'm like, oh, what's going to happen? Are they like there was a time where actually this was way beyond my time. This was actually, I think it was in the 80s, he said. Um, but these two girls that were on this camping trip got picked up by a boat and went partying on another island like that's a horror story for me I'm like what (laughs) like you know but because they woke up and there's two girls missing like what are they what are the who would think that a boat would come by and go party on island right so like it's it's cool to listen to the stories but that's what I mean it's also nice to just share those moments and be able to learn from somebody who's been there and done that and so and and like I learned a lot like even just what to pack like how (laughs) this is the funniest one how to take a shit in peace um that's the biggest one when you're out on a camping trip you can only go so far and there's only so many bathrooms. So there's <laughs> those tips were probably some of the best tips that I got, <laughs> but yeah, no learning from the, sorry, Leah, learning from seasoned people is, or veteran people is definitely the way, and it builds that relationship too. So I have a few people that I know that I can just, I can call on to, you know, Hey, I need some advice for this or, Hey, what would you suggest? And so building that community to help make yourself feel more comfortable when you're going out really helps you to alleviate that anxiety taking a big group out if you are going on a bigger trip. For sure. We have a couple of questions that we ask all of our guests, Megan. Um, And one is, where's your favorite place to visit in Saskatchewan? My favorite place to visit in Saskatchewan. Honestly, I haven't been there in a while, but it's definitely one of my favorite places. So I am originally from like when I was really young, I was in Priestville. Uh, so Priestville, Saskatchewan, it's a little north. Uh, but that was always my favorite place because 
that was where I would escape. Like, I, I remember when I was younger, like my cousin would take me out on a dune buggy and we go, you know, like cruising through the forest, find old barns. Like that would have been my first kind of experience going outdoors and doing things. And I remember I was, I was a wild child. I just like went out and run around It's a small town. Right. So like there was no real boundaries. I remember when I moved to the city, it was different. I moved to the city and it was like, oh, this is different. I'm I'm more confined. I can't. And so like, I just, it's a vivid memory from, you know, when I was younger for Saskatchewan and then very close to the more present times would be Northern Saskatchewan and the boreal forest. It's the most breathtaking experience I have ever had. I got the fortunate opportunity to go to Nostoyak Falls, which would be, what is it? Northeast of Stanley Mission. And so it was, an amazing trip and it's amazing to watch I would say all of Saskatchewan because it's amazing to watch the different landscapes that this province has going from flatland middle of nowhere you can see for miles to such dense forests that you don't even think you're in the same province anymore and if you could change one thing about the world what would you change <laughs> oh, these are the, now you're hitting the hard questions. If I could change one thing in the world, you know what I would do? I would pay people to be kind. And then maybe we'd have more kindness in the world. I just wish I had an unlimited amount of funds and I can just be like, you get a dollar, you get a dollar, and you get a dollar for being kind. That would be, because it, it would be easy to say, more kindness in the world, but that that doesn't just hit the button. I want to pay them so that they are more kind. <laughs> That's capitalist society. That's good. I like it. You can't volunteer kindness anymore. It's gotta it's gotta come with something. I like it. it gotta come with something. Yep. <laughs> yeah, sometimes there's a kid that makes you pretty upset, and you have to be kind to them. But you're like, I don't know if I get paid enough for that. <laughs> so call you. Yeah, that'd be good. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> That's the way I think it should go. That's a nice chat with Megan. Mm-hmm. Like, are there any actions that you're going to take away after our conversation with her? Yeah, it's always good, I think, to hear other educators of any kind talk about it. But I need to do more like pre and post lessons leading into an outdoor experience just to help make that experience better for the kids and for myself, too. So I need to change that about my practice. I do it a little bit, but obviously I need to amplify what I'm doing. How about you? I was thinking along the same lines, actually, but more on a personal level um, of spending some more time reflecting on my experiences, both like outdoors, just doing my own thing. And also when I'm leading a group or in an outdoor educator role, Uh, I used to do it more. And then I have fallen out of the habit. I think as it got colder, it's harder to write outside you can't pull out your pencil and make your reflection notes right there. Um, but I really found it valuable to take that time. And it doesn't even have to be that long, but to to reflect on, you know, what went well and what could change and what the unexpected experiences were. Uh, it's neat to, to look back on those. Definitely. This podcast is produced in association with Sask Outdoors. Check us out online at saskoutdoors.org.